Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to be in a place where God is dwelling in his people. Um, and it is wonderful for this particular day. It's a spe- very special day for me, for my family, um, for this church. And so I'm glad to be here. We'll be in Psalm 139, um, and we'll be looking at verses 7 to 12. This is a part of a four-part series called Terrifying Delight, and this one I've entitled Christ with Us. Christ with Us. Well, have you ever seen a young child, a very young child, play peekaboo? Right? And, you know, you teach them this, and peekaboo, and they look and, and, and they see you, and they actually they think you're gone, right? They have this spatial awareness issue at this early age, and they think you disappear when you can't see them, or so they think. And the game is, you know, is pretty fun for them. But the irony is, is, is that adults, we have the same spatial awareness issue and problem, except with us, it's with the spiritual world, We often think as adults that because we can't see God, that God can't see us. But this is absolutely not true. Today, what we're going to see is that God's presence is everywhere. And because we are united to him in Christ, that we can live in awareness and we can live in confidence. And so... I've mentioned last week this psalm. It's written by David, and it might have been a time that he was, uh, had been accused of idolatry, of worshiping other gods. And so he was praying this prayer, many think, um, for God to search him in the depths of his being and determine that this just wasn't the case. And so the psalm speaks of God's intimate omniscience. He knows everything. Um, he knows his people and all people His omnipresence, 7 to 12, this is what we're going to be talking about today. And then in verses 13 to 18, the reality that he's our creator and our companion. And then ultimately at the end of this passage, uh, to align ourselves with God's heart. And so today we're going to look at verses 7 to 12. And what we're going to see is we're going to see three three things. That there is no hiding from God's presence. that That God leads us and holds on to us. And that God brings light to our darkness. So let me read verses 7 to 12 from Psalm 139. This is the word of the Lord, so let's give careful attention to it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God is forever. All God's people said, amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, this is your word. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is the full revelation of our redemption and of who you are that we have been given. 
And so we delight in your word and we pray that you would make the meditations of our heart and the thoughts in our mind pleasing in your sight as we engage with this. And I pray that your spirit would fill us, that we would see you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we would rejoice and delight in the fact that you are with us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing I want us to see in verses 7 to 8 is that there is no hiding from God's presence. Listen to what it says. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free from your presence? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. I think David is asking the question here, is there any place that I can go that you aren't there? Is there any place I can go that you are not? And the answer that David gives is this resounding no. The psalmist isn't saying here that he wants to escape God's presence. What he's doing is he's saying simply that if he did try to escape God's presence, well, he couldn't do it. So there was a reason that I had us read Jonah, the book of Jonah, chapter 1. Did you notice that? What was Jonah doing? He was fleeing to Tarshish to avoid what God had asked him to do. Hiding in a boat, being like a parent who has spiritual spatial awareness issues, right? That's where Jonah was at. And so David is like basically speaking And Jonah should have known this, that you can't escape from the presence of God. No matter where you go, God will pursue you there. That phrase I think you've probably heard, you can run, but you can't hide, gets to the heart of these verses. As a human race, we actually began perfect, And we sinned against God. And in Genesis chapter 3, after we ate through Adam and Eve that the fruit of the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God called out, what did we do collectively as a people represented in Adam? We hid. We hid. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You know what the problem with their strategy was? That God is everywhere at once. And hiding behind bushes, right? isn't going to solve the problem. And so Genesis 3.9 continues because God is omnipresent. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, listen, God knew exactly where they were. That wasn't the point, was it? The point was this, is that he was actually giving them a bit of dignity and respect. Right? If you think about this, he allowed them through his question for them to come and confess and repent. God did not call him because he didn't know where they were, but because of that, and he was giving Adam and Eve a chance to come back to him. 
like our kids, when they do wrong things, we want them to come back to us, right? So we will give them opportunities to repent, to turn. So instead of coming down with justice and judgment at that moment, he first wanted to show them that he loved them, that he valued them, and so he began a dialogue with them to give them a chance to repent. Adam and Eve's problem, hiding from God, is still our problem today. We try to run and escape from God, but we can't. God is a spirit, and he is a creator of all. And so there isn't a place where he is not. He is omnipresent everywhere at once. Jonah tried it. It didn't work. In fact, he got thrown into the sea. Now, it doesn't matter where you go. You, David's saying, you could fly, if I take this and bring this down to our modern day, you could get on an airplane in the sky and fly. You could go up to outer space, the heavens. And literally, in the Hebrew, it says, there you. We fill in the verb are. But he's saying, it's exclamatory. There, you. Then he goes on and basically he's saying, or if I go to the bottom of the sea, or perhaps die and be buried, that's Sheol, the grave. And literally he says, behold, you. You see, everywhere we go, God is there. We can run, but we can't hide. Ironically, even in the running, there is God. Have you experienced that in your own life? Where you've maybe gone down a path of disobedience and you sort of hide and you run from God, you kind of stop praying and you might stop reading the Bible and you sort of get stuck in this little spiral and then God pursues you and chases you down. This is the kind of God who loves his people and pursues them. And we can have confidence because he's everywhere. We can't run from him. He will always draw us back. Now, isn't this actually kind of terrifying when you think about it? He has been there when we committed our most secret, our darkest sin. He has heard and seen our deepest and our darkest, most evil thought that we've had. And he not only sees our actions themselves, but he hears our very thoughts. He knows what's going on behind all them. And we see elsewhere in Scripture, actually, that all of these thoughts and actions are recorded. They're recorded in a book. This is another thing that's terrifying, right? God can't forget. He's eternal. It means that he doesn't have amnesia. He doesn't forget what happened in the past. I mean, you know that, right? With your redemption in Christ, that it's not that he forgets the stuff. It's that he forgives it. And it is put out of his mind, in a sense, of the judgment there, because that judgment was put upon Christ, and he will not bring that back up again that has been covered by the blood of Christ. He is eternal. Time doesn't apply to him. The past, the present, the future to him are all seamless. What you did a day ago or 30 days ago 
is still active in his mind. Now, doesn't this feel a little bit like a horror movie? Right? Everything that you do on display, all that you've ever done, all that you've ever thought is completely and readily available to God. And what makes it even scarier is that God won't allow any evil. He won't allow any thought or any deed that is wicked to go unpunished. God is just. Evil is evil. But God is also holy and perfect, and He cannot allow evil in His loving presence. I mean, people forget this at times, but the reality is, is, is that if people want God to just be forgiving, you hear it all the time, why, why, why can't God just forgive everybody? Well, the reality is, is if he did, he would be the most evil, horrendous being if he could forgive people who's, where justice wasn't met. The person whose life was terrorized, beaten, or brutal, brutalized by other people would end up being there in heaven next to the person who did it, and God just passed it by. How, how horrible of a, of a being would that be? I mean, you wouldn't want to be with somebody like that for eternity, would you? He could allow things to just play out and harm to happen to people without ever dealing with it. That's not a loving God. That's an evil God. And that's what the culture, that's what the world wants. But we have a God who's filled with love and mercy. So he must punish it, right? But the reality is, it gets worse though, right? Because humans are everlasting beings. They live forever. So the justice for the evil that they do, that we've done, whether it's thought or deed or whatever, requires an everlasting punishment. And so forever separation from the loving presence of God. I mean, you understand, right, that David says, there's nowhere where I can flee from your presence. It's not that hell is that God isn't, isn't there. It's that his wrath is there. It is not his loving presence that's there. It's his justice that's there. They can't hide from God because otherwise hell would be a paradise for people who hate God, right? But hell is not a paradise. You've seen that in movies, haven't you? Oh, I get to go to hell and do all this wonderful stuff that I've wanted to do. No, it's everything good is taken away and everything terrible is poured out justice on those who do not have God's mercy upon them. And so... It's only experiencing his wrath and displeasure forever. And that's terrifying, right? And I would say if this doesn't terrify you, you might have made up your own God. If the omnipresence of God, his all-powerfulness, his omnipotence, if the omniscience, the all-knowingness of God does not terrify you, you've probably made a little fluffy, puffy God that doesn't exist. But here's the deal. If this were the case, life would be miserable and not worth living, but it's not. It doesn't end there. Listen to verses 9 to 10. We see here that God leads us and he holds on to us. Here, what we read, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Isn't that stark contrast? 
The psalmist looks up to the sky and essentially, if we were to say in our modern mind, if I got on a flight that took me from east to west, or if I took a submarine and went to the deepest parts of the sea, you, God, would guide me on my journey. You would strengthen me to make it through. Why? Because God is not some abstract concept. He is a personal God who is with us and loves us. God is Yahweh the eternally present, ever-faithful God. His hand guides us and holds us. And this idea of guiding carries with it the idea of God's personal attention being set upon you. Have you thought about that? God guiding you means that God's personal attention is on you and on your life. Whether you know it or feel it or not, God's hand is on upon you. His attention is on you. He is making sure that we get to the place where he wants us to go. Not necessarily the place where you might want to go, but the place that he knows is best for you, where he wants you to go. And it says here, it's this idea of his right hand. And you know, in the scriptures, the Hebrew mind, right hand meant strength or power. Isn't that cool? His right hand, his strength or his power, the idea in the Hebrew is that will seize us, will grasp us. Essentially, the idea is he will, it carries this idea of his strength supporting us. His strength supports you. There is no place that is beyond God's care for you brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you know this? But here's the thing. Not only do you know this, do you feel this? Right? Knowledge is one thing. Application of that knowledge, understanding and practical outworking is another. So, is God leading you when you're laid out on a bed? Is God leading you when everything's going terrible at work? Is God leading you and guiding you when you're sick? Is God leading and guiding you when everything just seems to be falling apart and coming undone at the seams? Is that true? I mean, it is. But do we walk it? Do we walk our belief? out in practice. Finally, in verses 11 to 12, we see that God brings light to our darkness. It reads, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, the light be night. That would be pretty terrible. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Does this remind you of the words of Christ at the festival where he says, I am the light of the world? I am the light of the world, Jesus says. The light, the darkness is as light to you. David never had to fear that God would leave or abandon him. Why? Because even if he could make his ways... Have you ever been on a tour 
to one of those caves. And if you've ever been on tour of a cave, they, at some point in the cave, stop and they tell everybody, do not move. And they turn the light off. And it gets pitch black. And they tell you to put your hand in front of your face. And you hit your nose because it's so dark. The dark is so thick, you feel it. And you can't even feel your own hand. And David is saying, even if I was in a deepest cave where it's so pitch black, where I could feel the darkness, God would still be there. There is no possible way to hide from God, for God is light, and in Him, the Scripture tells us, is no darkness. Darkness to God is the same as light. He sees all. This doesn't bother David. The fact that God sees everything doesn't bother David. It rather brings him peace and it brings him assurance. Because there is nowhere that David can go where his loving, heavenly Father is not there already. And since he is loved and known by God, he has nothing to fear. And brothers and sisters, in Christ, you have nothing to fear no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through. You don't have to fear from enemies. You don't have to fear from animals. You don't have to fear the weather. You don't even have to fear the government. You don't have to fear the nations. They are, as Isaiah said, a drop in the bucket. And God, it says in Proverbs, steers the hearts of the king like rivers of water. What have we to fear? Nothing. Not with a God that is everywhere. Do you remember the story of the big idol that was raised by Nebuchadnezzar? And he said, at the sound of the trumpet and the drums and the harps, whatever it was, he said, you must bow. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow. And Nebuchadnezzar was so furious that he had that oven, a furnace of fire, heated up seven times hotter, such that when the people went to take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them in the furnace, that the guy who was going to do that died on the spot from heat. Probably lost his breath and just died. Then... They are fall forward as the guy probably just fell and knocked them in, perhaps. And they're dancing. They're dancing. And Nebuchadnezzar says, didn't we put three guys in there? Three. I see four. One like an angel, or the son of God, I believe it said, or son of man. The reality is, is that God was present with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when the nations tried to kill them. This is David's God. This is your God. This is my God. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, we can see God's omnipresence. And he says, And I saw a great white throne and one sitting on it. Listen. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. 
I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were open, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. Death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. Did you miss that part? All that stuff is gone. Death in the grave. This lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. At the end of time, a great day of judgment will happen, and this God, who has seen everything we have done and knows every thought, will pull out books, whether they're figurative or literal. I don't know. They might be literal. They could be figurative. And in these books will be everything that we've ever done. And then there will be another book, a book called the Book of Life. And that book seems to simply have names in it. Names, not deeds. Names. And whoever's name is in that book, right, is not going to be eternally judged in the lake of fire and hell. No, they will be with their God forever. But Revelation says in verse 20, chapter 21, verse 27, in speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone whose practice is shameful, idolatry, and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That book that has your name, if you are united to Christ in it, is called the Lamb's book of life. It contains the names of those who are united to Christ. Those who have been washed by his blood, buried with him in his death, and raised with him in his resurrection, all who are known by him will live forever with him in the new heavens and earth. And though all our evil deeds are recorded in a book, do you know what happened? Christ took those deeds, and he had that written to his book. All the charges against you and against me Christ allowed them to be written against him. And then he bore the eternal wrath of God for them. So the only book that your name shows up to if you're united in Christ is the Lamb's book of life. We are pardoned because of Christ's death and the judgment that was put upon him by God for our sake. And this is all because of the life, death, resurrection. And ascension of Christ. You see, we have nothing to fear from the fact that we can't escape the presence of God. You see? There's nothing to fear for those who are united to Christ. In fact, since we are united to Christ by the Spirit, He lives in us. Christ lives in us. It doesn't matter where we go, He's there. We don't have to go hunting for Him, we don't have to go searching for a revival. He's here. You don't have to find some holy place to go. Where he is, he sanctifies. His presence is with you if you're united to Christ. We simply must trust him that he is with us and daily practice his presence by abiding in him. And that's why Jesus says in John 15, 4-5, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So here's a question. 
I had this asked to me. I, I speak of abiding in Christ a lot. And I have practical people at the previous church, and they would ask me, how do I do that? How do I abide in Christ? It's so abstract. You must feed on him every day. You're feeding on Christ right now, at least I hope. I'm preaching Christ to you. You have ears that are given to you by the Spirit of God. You have eyes, spiritual eyes, to discern. And by hearing of Christ and his person, his work, and all he's done, you are feeding upon him. Don't just make it so that I am the only one who's giving you this. You must feed upon Christ every day by being in his word, by entering and engaging him in prayer. You must pray to him to ask him to show you his presence. And we must be diligent to not only remember that he is with us and that he will never leave us nor forsake us, but we have to live as if that is actually true. Because if you don't live as if that's true, you are not practicing the presence of Christ. And you will slowly fade into sin, into immorality, into idolatry if you're not constantly abiding, constantly feeding upon Christ. Now, when I say constantly, I understand, right, that you can't be just reading your Bible all day long. That's not my point. You just must be in the Word. You must meditate on it. Chew on it. That's what that word meditation means. Chew on it. Apply it, right? You have busy lives. I understand. But as you're driving, if you, you, there's ways to listen to the Bible, right? As you're sitting and eating breakfast, if all you have is five minutes because you wake up late, grab your Bible and sit there and just read on it. Soak it in, right? This is your life. It's the words of God to you. You won't grow in him if you don't seek him in his word. So we must actually understand and believe his words that he said right before he ascended. He gives the Great Commission. Everybody knows that, right? Go and make disciples, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, baptizing them, you know, all that. You all know that. But then what does he say? And behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you believe that? That Jesus is with you? He said it. He wasn't just talking to just his disciples. He's talking to us. We need to pray for faith to know the reality of Jesus' presence. We have to ask God to give us the faith to live the reality that he is always with us. So, I want to, in conclusion, I... I had six points that I was going to draw out from, from a commentator. Five were from him, and then there was a sixth point that I had came up to. And then as I was praying and reading the script, reading and studying this week, I felt the Lord was leading me to actually only focus on point six. So if you want those five other points, come and see me. I'll, I'll, I'll give them to you. But I think the sixth is where it's at. The one united to Christ should be possessed by an intense consciousness of the constant presence of God. And because of this, should be reminded of the reality that Jesus tells us in John 10, that he is the good shepherd, the shepherd of the sheep. And this should remind us of his words in John 15, that we abide in him and should draw us into seeking to abide him more and more. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you practically how to pray through the scripture. Do you have your Bibles? If you have, turn them to Psalm 23. 
See, he tells us that he's everywhere. Christ is everywhere, right? So where do you see Christ being with us? Well, everybody knows Psalm 23, right? Most people, anyway. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not walk. I've written up a prayer that is a prayer for God to show us his presence. And it's from Psalm 23. So if you can follow along with me. Lord Jesus, you are our shepherd. We shall not want. You are our true shepherd. You watch over us. You keep us safe. You come after us when we wander. You provide for us everything that we need. You will never keep from us what we really need. Would you give us eyes to see this? Would you give CPC ears to hear you telling us this? Lord Jesus, you make us to lie down in green pastures. You lead us beside still waters. Lord, as sheep, we don't lie and rest easily unless we are in the perfect conditions. And so unless we are free from fear and trouble and like sheep from flies and hunger, we won't rest. So as the good shepherd, would you provide us with trust, with peace, with deliverance, and would you provide us with pasture to make this rest happen? Lord Jesus, you restore our soul like sheep that can roll over, Lord, on their back and begin to panic and struggle and not be able to get back over. You are the good shepherd that sees us in our rut and helps us out, getting us back to our feet again. Would you do this for CPC and for each and everyone here? Lord Jesus, you lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. You are the good shepherd who will lead us on paths of righteousness or to the right way, the way that leads to everything we need. Would you guide us and direct us to all that we need, to the righteousness that you provide us and the righteousness that you build in us through your spirit. And even though, Lord, that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that we will fear no evil because you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Lord, you are the good shepherd who provides your presence, your protection, and peace to us, your sheep, as we pass through the valley of the shadow of death. We do not have to fear evil because you are with us and you provide us comfort with your rod and with your staff. You use these at the right time in the right way. You use your rod to protect us from the predators who will try to destroy us. You use your staff to pull us to yourself when we are wandering away, to rescue us from danger when we put ourselves in harm's way, and even to rescue us from ourselves when we get out of line. You comfort us by your ever-watchful care. Lord Jesus, you prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our heads with oil. Our cup overflows. You are our good shepherd and also the Lord of armies. You prepare a table right in the middle of the battles we face. You anoint our head with oil. You keep on filling up our cup to overflowing so when the world is raging mad around us in war and everyone else is fighting for their own survival and our enemies are trying to destroy us, you fight for us while we sit down at a wonderful meal that you prepared for us. We sit and eat a delightful feast. And so you are making sure that we are refreshed by renewing, by pouring out your blessings upon us. Would you please pour out these blessings upon us? 
and you are also making sure that we are being refreshed with a continual supply of drink. Jesus, just as soon as we take a drink, you fill our cup again. You have provided, are providing, and will continue to provide for us better than anyone has ever done and ever will. Lord Jesus, surely goodness and mercy will follow us, will chase us down all the days of our lives, and we will dwell in your house forever. Lord, would you allow the reality of the, of the fact that we will dwell with you to, forever to enter into our minds today that we might understand that even today that you are with us and that we can delight in you and we can drink from your rivers of delights and we can be glad in you. And that every way and every day you chase us down with your divine love that's unmatched by anyone. Would you satisfy us with your love? We, would you make us so that we never doubt your love and we never doubt that you will continue to chase us down? And not only this, Lord, but would you give us confidence that because of your faithful, unending, and constant love for us, that we will always live with you, the forever existing faithful, completely trustworthy God who is present with us even at this moment. Allow us to remember that you are with us in the most difficult situations we face. We praise you and we ask that these things would become a part of us in our day-to-day lives. We worship you and adore you. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, our beautiful and wonderful Savior to your glory, Father, empowered by the living Spirit of God. Amen.